Some things are not as they seem. There are certain situations in life which you look at and you can tell there's more going on there than meets the eye. Looks like one thing, but you know there's something happening behind the scenes. That's what Revelation reveals. A picture of something and then something at a spiritual level. Today we're going to look at Revelation chapter 12, and Revelation 12 is going to tell us one of the most important themes in the book of Revelation. It is the axis of a theological battle between God and his arch enemy, Satan. I realize that you don't go to church and listen to stories about Satan that much, and in recent surveys about people in the United States, most people do not even believe in a real personal Satan. But the Bible does, and it reveals it. Remember, the book of Revelation is an apocalyptic book with many symbols and metaphors, and the difficulty of reading the book of Revelation is trying to sort out what each of the symbols and allusions mean. And um, there are differences of opinion about what they mean. As my good friend Thomas Milburn said last week, the book of Revelation is written by the Apostle John. And when you begin to look at how interpreters over the years have interpreted them, some of the leading champions that we believe in and root for, um, like um, Jonathan Edwards or John Calvin, or John Stott, or more contemporarily, John Piper, or John MacArthur, you have a variety of opinions, and what do they all have in common? They're all named John. And probably a few more things that they agree with, too. But it, to me, is not as important today that you understand and agree with each other about the particular um, interpretation precisely of timelines or even interpreting every symbol of what did John mean when he used this analogy or metaphor as much as it is that you do know there is a spiritual battle that is described in some way in the heavenly places that impacts the life of every person on earth who is trying to follow God. There is a spiritual battle at play. It comes to really a sharp focus in chapter 12 as we're looking through the book of Revelation but I want you to consider the possibility that what you experience in your life today is a spiritual battle too. A spiritual battle from a spiritual enemy who is against what God wants for your life. And it could be that the most important thing that you take away from today's message is that you have a choice in your life. Are you going to listen to the voice of God? Or are you going to listen to the voice of an enemy who wants to lead you away from God? It could be the most important decision of your life. Things are not as they seem. Most of us live our life without thinking about the reality that there is an influence that wants to lead you away from God and destroy the very work of God in your life. 
it is urgent that you understand there is a spiritual battle. So I'm going to encourage you, try not to get goofed up by the symbolism. Try to get a sense that I've prayed for this week that you'll get a sense of the reality, what's real, what's a little confusing, what's absolutely certain, and that you'll go away with what's certain, and it will change your life for the way you, the way you live the rest of your life. Okay? You with me? Now, before we read chapter 12, we should read chapter 11, verse 15, because it kind of rolls into it. First, chapter 6 had six seals. Six out of seven seals. Seals were the judgments. It was a scroll that opened up, and there were six of them. And then there was a break in the six seal judgments in chapter 7, and then in chapter 8, verse 1, the seventh seal was given. And when the seventh seal was given, it opened up another set of judgments called the trumpet judgments. And those trumpet judgments are in verse chapters 8 and 9, all the way through the sixth trumpet. And then it stops. And in chapter 10 through eleven fourteen, there's an interlude. And then in chapter 11, verse 15, the seventh trumpet sounds. Now we said that the judgments of the seals and the trumpets are a progressing uh, breaking out of God's judgment against the sin of mankind and a judgment at the end of the age. They are cumulative. They may run at the same time or in a strictly sequential, literal, often thought of as a dispensational way of reading through the book of Revelation, they are sequential. And now we come to the seventh trumpet. And in the seventh trumpet, you read the angel blew his trumpet, and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Let's read the last phrase together. And he shall forever and ever. And that sort of looks like the end. And we're only in chapter 11, but it sure looks like when the seventh trumpet is blown, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He's back, and He's going to reign forever and ever. And that's how some people read it, that this is the end, and then when you get to the future chapters, they're retelling what is already said. Others see that the seventh trumpet is blown and the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of his Lord and everything that happens from chapter 11 and 12 to 18 is going to happen very quickly in three and a half years, in 1,260 days. It's all going to look like it's happening together or it's so certain that it's going to happen in the future that John can say it's done. Either way, how you, you read that, it doesn't matter that what we're seeing in the seventh trumpet is, it's over. Next verse. And the 24 elders fell down on their faces and worshiped God and said, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, what's missing? Who was to come? Huh, why? He came, Probably. So here the angels are singing here in the next verse after the seventh trumpet, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. So it seems like 
It's saying a picture that it, it's over. Verse 18. And the nations raged, and your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and the saints. Ah, prophets and the saints. You're still circling and underlying prophets and saints. Who's that referred to? Hmm. Old Testament prophets? New Testament saints? The whole community? Is it wrapping up all of God's people? Probably. Both great and small, those who fear your name for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. It's all coming down to a conclusion. And yet there's seven or eight more chapters to go. So where do they fit in? That's where not everybody agrees. But verse 19 says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened. This is the second time we see something in heaven opened. Chapter 4, it was a door opened. And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. Now, the ark of the covenant was a very special um, ark. And in it, it was the Old Testament in the temple, and the blood of sacrifice was made on the ark. Uh, and the blood of the sacrifices of lambs was made on the ark in the Old Testament, and it opened up the way for there to be communion with God because the blood offerings atoned for sins on the ark. The ark was also the place where God was over speaking to Moses. The voice of God came out of the ark. And what is it? What's the picture John sees? It's open. Like, ah, the very place that God creates community with his people is opened up. And where the voice of God speaks, it's opened up. And there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, earthquake and a heavy hail. It, it's imagery. Remember, it's uh, got his language of the vision he sees. Now, with that happen at the end of the seventh trumpet, now psh, click over here, chapter 12, a scene in heaven. And there's a scene in heaven with three characters that we're going to look at in chapter 12. And again, I'm going to ask you to follow along these three characters in the first five verses and try to understand maybe what John is seeing. So verse 1 of chapter 12 says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown with 12 stars. That sounds different. It's a woman with the sun around her and the moon under her feet. And 12 stars as a crown. Anybody have a connection to an Old Testament passage here with this? Those of you who have gone to Sunday school, you remember that Joseph had a dream. Joseph, who was um, eventually brought to slavery in Egypt, but one day he had a dream and he told his father, I had a dream. And I had a dream that the sun and the moon bowed down to me. And his father said, are you telling me that one day your mother and father are going to bow down to you? That was my dream. And Joseph was one of 12 sons. And I think this is an analogy to that, that there was a woman clothed in the sun. The question is, who is the woman in the story? 
in the vision, the woman, I think, is Israel. Um, more about that in a moment. But she was pregnant, and she was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. So, in John's picture, everybody back? Okay. There's a vision of a woman who sort of symbolizes what might have happened in Genesis uh, 37 where Joseph has a dream that the, he, he's going to be worshipped by his siblings. This woman is going to have a baby. I think the woman is Israel and she's going to have a, a child and that child is going to be described in a moment. She's a symbolic mother, not a literal mother. Uh, she's the Israel or the people of God together um, Anyway, there she is crying out to give birth. Verse 3. Another sign, second character in the vision, appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, on his head seven diadems. Okay, remember, we're not going to try to pick everything, but I think the diadems, the horns, and the heads is a sense of uh, authority, uh, wealth, influence, power, uh, there is a dragon there. He's red. Right? Why red? It's red, it's blood, it's conquest. In John's vision, there is a sign of a dragon. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Okay, woman giving birth to a child could be Israel giving birth to a child that we're going to see in the next character, but there is a dragon who wants to kill that child. It's a dragon who with his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. What are you thinking in your mind? You're thinking, well, is there a picture of some demonic force that's a red dragon in the Old Testament that was cast out of heaven and thrown to earth with a third of the Angels, yes, there is. That's referred to in Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel 28. We're not going to spend too much time, but who is the dragon? The dragon, as we're going to see through the context, is none other than Satan himself, the devil, the serpent of old, all language spoken of him soon in this text, and the deceiver of the whole world. Um, this dragon wants to devour the child of the woman. If the woman is Israel, the whole community of faith, this means that this dragon, Satan, the deceiver, wants to attack the people of God in every way that he can and to devour them, to kill them. Okay, you read through the book of the Old Testament, and do you ever see any Attacks against the people of God that want to kill the children of the people of God. It's really kind of interesting to think about when the children of Israel um, go down into Egypt and they are there, it is Pharaoh who gives an order for all the Hebrew children to be drowned in the Nile River in Genesis, or sorry, in Exodus chapter 1. 
In Esther chapter 3 and verse 6, Haman sent an edict that all the people of the kingdom were to rise up and kill the Jews in the Persian Empire so that he served, I believe, as Pharaoh did, as an agent of the dragon who wants to kill the children of the woman who gives birth. Or more appropriately, or precisely, do you remember when Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Herod, learning about the baby born in Bethlehem, says, I, I want to know about this Christ. And he eventually says, tell me about the one who was born king of the Jews and soon after ordered all the male children in Bethlehem to be killed. Remember that? Okay, there you have three little sequences of what I would say leaders demonically influenced to destroy the children of the offspring of the woman, the people of God, Israel, or the entire community of faith of God. Satan is a murderer. We're going to see that in a little bit. But ever since the Garden of Eden, Satan has been to go after and destroy. So there's two characters, and you're still with me, a woman and a dragon, and then verse 5, the child. Who is the child? She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Who do you think we're talking about as a child? Can only be one, right? Who is it? It's Jesus, the Messiah. The one who in Psalm 2 is described by the psalmist as one who would come and rule with a rod of iron. It's one who was caught up to God in the ascension post-resurrection, and to his throne, which is described earlier in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. It is a picture of none other than Jesus Christ that she, whether it's Mary or Israel, gave birth to a child, and this child is this one. And the woman fled to the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she's to be nourished. Uh, 1,260 days. Let's talk about why, if this is a reference to Jesus, why does John's vision only say Jesus was born and then caught up? If it's Jesus, why doesn't the vision tell more about Jesus? I think one reason is because Jesus came into the world for one reason. And what was it? I was born for this purpose. Remember Pilate said to Jesus, are you a king? He said, for this I was born, that I would be a king. And here it is. He was born, and then he's caught up to his throne. He, Jesus is enthroned in heaven. And what did he do before then? He, he died on the cross, he was buried, and he rose again. And that's all that's said in this vision of Jesus. You have to try to follow along with me that in the vision that John sees, Israel gives birth to a child, but that child is attacked all the way. And I think that what we're seeing here is a picture that, that really is the way it always is in heaven is that there is an enemy who's been cast out of heaven 
and the, he fell to earth and he rebelled against God and this Satan is against God in every way and attacks the people of God as this vision John sees says. Now the sign, interestingly, that the woman is a sign because she points to a greater reality. It's not a literal woman. It's probably all the redeemed people of God. And the dragon is a sign because it points to a greater reality, not just a real dragon like you might see in a movie, but a greater reality of the spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. And then there's a child who's not called a sign. Why do you think the child is not called a sign? Because the child doesn't point to anything greater than itself. He is the reality. He is the Son of God. He is Jesus. And um, that male child is the Messiah who's going to rule with a rod of iron. Okay, are there any questions? Okay, like that's just the beginning of the picture. And then it unfolds. And I'm going to try to move quickly through the next several verses so that I can tell you what difference this makes to you in 2023 as you think about the reality of what's going on in heaven. Is there really a spiritual battle where there is God, Christ, and an enemy of God? So chapter 12, verse 7 says, now, the war, a war arose in heaven, and Michael and his angels were fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer a place for him in heaven. And the dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, the one who was called the devil and Satan. Oh, there's your identification of the dragon. It's made right here in the vision. John says, this is who I'm talking about. There's a battle in heaven. Don't know when it happened. I think I, I, think I know when it happened, but it doesn't say right here, but Michael and Satan fight and Satan is thrown out of heaven, the deceiver of the whole world thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Probably this happened at uh, the crucifixion and ascension. We're not exactly sure when, but this, this is the battle scene in heaven where Satan is thrown out of heaven. Verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven, now salvation, with this, with this judgment coming, now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Mm, another signal that, oh, we're near the end. The kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives unto death. This is John's picture of the vision. There's really a battle in heaven. Michael has thrown Satan out. And the people in heaven praised that the kingdom of our God has come and the authority of Christ have come. The accuser of the brothers have been thrown down. Verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you on the earth and sea, and the devil has come down to you with great wrath. He knows his time is short. Okay, out of heaven, down to earth, not, no longer present with access to God, but the God of this world, the God of this age, present on the earth. Woe to you who live on the earth because he knows his time is short. The end of the age is coming. The judgment of God is about to be here, but there he is on the earth wrecking his havoc. Verse 13. We're getting close. And when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, what did he do? 
His whole mission was to pursue the woman. Who is the woman? Is it Israel? Is it the whole community of faith? He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent to the wilderness to the place where she had been nursed for time, times, and half a time. There's that period, 1260 days, three and a half years, time, times, and half a times. Confusing? Yes, I get it. So is this a, a picture of the last three and a half years of the great tribulation before Christ comes? Maybe. Or is this time, times, and half a times, the whole period from the ascension of Christ to the return of Christ? Maybe. You sort that out with all the Johns that we talked about earlier. All we know is that the devil was thrown down to earth in order to pursue the woman, the community of faith that brought forth the Messiah. 1516 are not, oh, there they are, and the serpent poured out like water. This is Maybe a reference to Moses, but the earth came to the help of the woman. The earth opened up its mouth, swallowed the river and dragon. Okay, this probably is an Old Testament allusion, perhaps to Moses and Elijah. I'm not going there this morning. It's too dense to get through. Just hold that, treasure it, do a research paper and send it to me, okay? <laughs> uh, but, but what you're just seeing is this conflict. Again, apocalyptic language that John is seeing. These are not literal. These are like what he's seeing. What are the spiritual truths? Verse 17 helps us bring it to a wrap, and then we'll make some applications. Then the dragon became furious with the woman who was protected for those 1260 days, which is either the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, according to literal dispensational thinking, or it's the whole period between the ascension and the return of Christ, to make war on the rest of her Okay, the dragon went off to make war against the woman and the rest of her, which is who? Who does it include? Are you a part of the offspring of the community of people who, through whom Christ came into the world? That there is a dragon who went off to war against the rest of the offspring of the woman. That be you. And me, further described by these phrases, those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. John's picture has a dragon going after the, women, the woman and all of her offspring who are defined as those who keep God's commandment and hold on to the testimony of Jesus that's every Christ follower as it was every Jew in the Old Testament. So I'm going to let you sort out the eschatology of all of this, and I'll help you in any way that I can. I just don't want you to leave church without understanding that there is a battle in the spiritual realm that is real from the beginning of the Garden of Eden until Jesus comes back and makes things new. And I don't want anybody to leave here today naive to thinking that there are not spiritual influences that do seek to destroy and steal and kill the life of God in every child of God. And how do you protect yourself against it? 
And I want you, the reason I want you to know the reality of that is because when you see terrible things happen in the world, you're going to be inclined to demonize people. But we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There really is a spiritual battle. And I know this may be getting into a realm where you say, I'm not sure I believe that, but let me see if I can follow through a couple things that will help us go from here to a practical application of this. The Bible actually warns us that we have an enemy who's a roaring lion prowling about seeking someone to devour. And that he, he is the thief who came to steal and kill and destroy. And how do you get ready to face a spiritual adversary that wants to lead you away from loving the Lord your God with all your heart? I don't want you to be ignorant of his schemes. So here are three things that describe the mission of Satan through all time, including today. Number one, he is a accuser, an accuser. It's there in verse 10 where the loud voice in heaven says, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who, present tense, accuses them day and night before our God. He's been judged by God, but he still accuses. Have you ever heard accusations in your heart and mind wondered where they come from? Have you ever heard a voice in your head that says to you, you're not good enough? Have you ever heard the accusation of an enemy that says God doesn't know about your situation? God doesn't care about your situation? God doesn't believe in your faith? Have you ever heard an accusation that you can never be faithful enough, that you've sinned too much, that you were born in the wrong body, you married the wrong person, have you ever been told you can never get over this? You could never forgive them? You're not tall enough? You're not smart enough? You fill it in. Have you ever had an accusation come to you that you just feel like there's no way I could know, love, or follow God or that He would see me? Where does that come from? In its most base form, we have to understand that there are, we're always responsible for our life and our thinking, but there are influences in our life that say to us, you are not good enough for God. That's Satan. That is an enemy. Because we're going to get to the other side of that that is just the super solution to those accusations. And they're real. Number two, he's a deceiver. He's a liar. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, he is really described there the deceiver of the whole world. The Bible uses the word schemes, tricks. Satan is the one who makes evil look good to us. It makes good look boring or bad. Promises to deliver, but never does. He's the deceiver that says to you, your salvation is not secure. Just go back to Genesis chapter 3, and here 
the enemy of God say to Adam and Eve in the garden, did God say to you, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Did God say that? He's tricky. What did God say? You may eat of any tree in the garden, only this tree you can't. And Satan comes and says, did God say to you, you can't eat of any tree in the garden? I don't know how to answer that. He did say, I can't eat of this one, but he didn't see, I couldn't eat of anyone. And what's Satan trying to do? He's trying to twist and turn and trick. And he does that. He's a deceiver. He's an angel of light. He, he twists things in our mind. And we can get led astray. And sometimes they'll just come right smack out and say a straight up lie. God said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And Satan said, you will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, you're going to know the difference between good and evil and you'll be like God. That's, that's the enemy, a deceiving liar. God, uh, okay, there's just so much that we could go to, but uh, he's, he's a liar. How about Acts chapter 5, verse 3? Peter said to Ananias, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie against the Holy Spirit? Where does lying come from? It comes from an enemy. Okay, we all get tempted by the lies of our enemy. Number three, he's a murderer. He's a murderer. When Cain rose up and murdered Abel. Sin is crouching. He's a murderer. He's a murderer all the way through in all the cases that we saw earlier. He wants to destroy. I, I think we should think about what happens in the world when there's murder. Where does that come from? Every human being is a responsible agent, but why is there a proliferation of evil in the world? Somebody said to us this week on staff, um, why is all this murder happening in the world? Where, where does that come from? Why are we not more evolved in 2023? Why do people still want to kill each other in 2023? And it was just a genuine question, is why is the world not getting better? Looking in the Middle East at what happened over the last three weeks in the atrocious events, like how, does, how do humans still do this to one another? It's a serious question. What do you think the answer is, in part? In part, there's evil influence. There's evil wickedness in the world that leads people to murder. Look at this verse from John chapter 8, verse 44. John 8, 44, Jesus is talking to Jews in his day who did not believe he was the Messiah. They were not a part of the community of faith, even though they were ethnic Jews. They were... They were not believers in Jesus. And he said to them, you belong to your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires, the devil's. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's Jesus talking about the reality of Satan. So if you're here today and you say, well, I gee, that's an old school idea that there's a Satan. I don't think there's a Satan. Jesus did. This is what he said about him. 
He's a liar, and he wants to influence people. And in the end of the age, as we get into the future chapters, you will see that Satan will actually influence political leaders to do terrible things. And I think it's happening around the world today. The question then is, if there is this great spiritual conflict, how do you win over it? What, what is the antidote? Well, it's right here in the text, so let's look at it if we can. Verse 11. While he is making war against the offspring of the woman, it says of them in verse 11, they conquered him. They conquered. We were more than conquerors. They conquered him in three ways. Number one, the blood of the lamb. What does that mean? That means that when you're hearing a lie that you are not good enough, that your sins are not forgiven, that you've done too much for God to receive you, when you're hearing a lie that Jesus is not the Messiah, you need to say to yourself, no, I know who I am because Christ died for me. He is my Savior and He paid it all and my sins are forgiven. It is the blood of the Lamb that makes anybody right with God. I have a friend in Ohio who called me this week and he said, Pastor, I need your help. He said, I have a friend who has just been diagnosed with cancer, stage four, and I don't know what to say to him. My friend told me this week that he wants me to come see him, but I don't know what to say to him. One of the things that my dying friend said to me is, I haven't done enough. I'm not good enough. He said, Are you, have you trusted in Christ and your Savior? Yes, I have, but I haven't done enough. And I'm worried that if I die, I won't go to heaven. That's a genuine fear, isn't it? There are a lot of people who are afraid of dying. And I just want to say to you, the, the worst thing that can happen to you is not dying. The worst thing that can happen to you is dying when you're not ready to die. And the only way you can be ready to die is when you are covered by the blood of the Lamb. That Jesus is your Savior and He died in your place and you embrace Him. Jesus paid it all. And Satan may accuse you, he may try to deceive you, he may attack you, and the only place that you can stand is, I'm in Jesus Christ and He's my Savior and He died for me and I belong to Him. And everybody said, I mean, if you don't have that, then you're not ready. But if you have that, you're ready. The blood of the Lamb, two. And by the word of their testimony, their testimony, they overcame by saying, this is what I believe, this is what I believe, this is what I believe. I believe that Jesus died and rose again. He was buried. Jesus died, was buried, and he rose again. That's the good news of the gospel. Their testimony is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And they stood on it. And people push against it. And they say, no, it's not by works I've been saved. It's by grace through faith in Christ alone. I stand on Christ alone, the gospel. My testimony is it's Christ and Christ alone. Is that yours? That was theirs. And thirdly, they love not their lives even unto death. They had a vision of what is coming in eternity that that exceeds what's coming tomorrow. What I have today is not worthy to be compared to what I'm getting Jesus said, um, who's, who doesn't take up his cross and deny himself and die to himself and follow me is not worthy of me. 
They didn't even love their lives here. Even unto death, they would be willing to say what Paul said, for me to live is Christ, and if I die, yahoo, I go to be with Jesus. Job said, even if God slays me through all these trials, yet will I trust him. There's a mindset that says this world is not my home, and those who overcome the temptations of the adversary say the blood of the Lamb is my foundation. My testimony is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He died for me. And if I die here, I go to heaven. I win there too. Now this speaks to American Christians like a big old slap in the face. Because we want to be comfortable here. We want the best here. And that's not what the end of the age in the book of Revelation teaches. It teaches that there is a spiritual battle but Christ is on the throne. He's coming again. It's almost over. Are you ready? You can be ready. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? But let's end it this way. In Romans chapter 8, a beautiful text for everybody who feels anxious today about what I've preached Go home and study Romans 8. It will help you. It really will. Romans chapter 8 actually begins not on the screen. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What's the answer to that question? Nobody that matters. If God is for us, who can be against us? Everybody? All right, one more time. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody that matters. There may be people against you in your school, in your class, in your work, but nobody that matters or can do anything about your destiny can be against you in a way that alters who you are. He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for all of us, won't he freely, graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Answer, nobody. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn once Satan is going after you saying you're not good enough, who can condemn? It's Christ who died. More than that, Christ was raised. Christ is at the right hand of God, Revelation 4 and 5. And he's praying for us. I mean, there is a battle and we may be bombarded but does anything really stick in the end? No, because Christ is the Messiah who took upon humanity in himself and died on the cross and went to the grave and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and sits on the throne and prays for you today. What shall separate us from the love of God? I am convinced that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Okay, I hope you go away today with a sense of confidence that there is a battle that we will face till the end of time, but Jesus Christ is the victor. Believe him. Let's pray. Oh, dear God, thank you. Thank you for a glimpse into the end of the age.
and for the certainty that we know we have because Christ died and rose again and ascended into heaven. You sit on the throne. You are the king of kings. You're coming again. You're going to make all things right. But it is a hard battle right now, and we struggle. And we are tempted and buffeted and accused and often deceived. And we just pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will give our minds and our hearts and our volitions the ability to believe and embrace and act upon the things that you have said about yourself. I pray for anybody who's been in a dark place of deception. Would you just bring them out to the light? For anybody who's here uh, discouraged and unsure, would you just call them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved? I thank you that the one who can give life is here today speaking to us. And, And we just want to say we want you to be our mighty fortress, the one we run into, our strong tower, our salvation. We cling to you, Lord Jesus, and we pray in your name. Amen.